Welcome to the final episode of African Mobilities Volume 3 on Speculative Futures. My name is Mpo Madziba, curator and founder of the African Mobilities Project. On this podcast, Olele Kanjefis and Walela Wal discuss their collaboration on Mad Horse City, a project that produced an interactive VR, video and graphic novella that considers Lagos in the year 2115. They also discuss what it means to imagine futures from Lagos beyond dystopia and also future making, not only as a creative process, but also as a practical approach to disrupting archives and systems of knowledge production. Olalekan Jafis is an artist based in New York City. He's exhibited around the world and created large-scale, award-winning artworks for a variety of public spaces. He graduated with a bachelor's degree in architecture from Cornell University and uses architecture as a storytelling medium to create fantastic worlds and imagery that also helps us to rethink urban development through the lens of science fiction. Wale Lawal is a Lagos-based writer and he was recently named to the Quartz list of top African innovators. Educated at the University of Bath, the London School of Economics and the University of Oxford, Wale is a senior researcher at Harvard Business School and the founder and editor-in-chief of The Republic, a journal of Nigerian and African affairs. The key word for this podcast is rapture. Hi, my name is Wale Lawal. Hello, my name is Olalikon, but I go by Lake. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about Mad Horse City. Can you tell me what the objective for Shanti Megastructures was? This, this actually started back when I'd taken a trip. Um, I actually had a research grant through Cornell where I went to school, and uh, it was a research travel grant to, to, to South Africa. Um, Joburg particularly, and then we went to Cape Town, but we were looking at um, the townships. And I was just, you know, just fascinated with kind of like the township architecture um, and also the sort of marketplace culture, which, you know, is very prevalent, you know, they, you know throughout Nigeria as well. It's, 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 yeah, it, it, it is the prevailing economy, right? Um, and that's another concept, the fact that the informal market can survive crashes because it works in and of itself, right? Um, but I was just really interested in, instead of looking at all the glass and steel and reimagining the super slick sci-fi, I was more fascinated with that organic settlement sci-fi. Like, how do I create this world that looks at these settlements, you know what I mean? That operate, that, that exist on the fringes and in the interstitial spaces, uh, of the urban city, you know? Um, and for me, I was, I, I felt that would be, you know, a kind of more fascinating, interesting future to examine and look at, um, again, because you don't see that kind of future. You see yeah. the slick, sanitized, um, and then again, the idea that, you know, glass and steel and all of this slick stuff, you know, confers a sense of progress, right? Like I was yeah. interested in kind of challenging that idea as well. Why does why does this very sort of Western, um, you know, uh, uh, vision of of of, uh, of of a future 
why is that the one that um, we've determined is the most valid and is the most advanced? Why I was interested in creating a, a future that looks towards you know these these informal settlements, but they're highly self-organized settlements. Yeah. So you know, made an interesting model. The idea was about you know two things. One, it was about looking at marginalized communities that are overlooked and never projected into any future you know Definitely, yes. um, never reimagined so there's that sci-fi aspect um and then the other side was was looking at kind of a lot of inherent sustainable practices that these communities engage in both as a function of necessity but also as a function of ingenuity right whereas in kind of architectural practices it's, it's uh, you know Sustainable practices have been commodified and they're sort of trendy now. Green architecture, this, that, you know what I mean? There's, there's, yeah. there's sort of that uh, capital, capitalist kind of approach attached to, to green architecture or sustainable yeah. architectures. So it was two things. It was making a statement about the lack of seeing marginalized communities in the future yeah. and acknowledging, you know, acknowledging what these communities have done within, you know, the, the sort of space that they exist and live uh, to yeah. create sustainable practices, you know, when they're not supported by the state or they're exactly. not acknowledged in like yeah. larger yeah. urban development. There's a tension that people have, especially people, you know, people over here even, and, and, or people just generally, but it's also present here, which is this mm -hmm. idea of, you know, the future as a place that is sanitized where everything yeah. is kind yeah. of like clean lines and, you know, bright yeah. you know, skyscrapers and a lot of glass and stuff like that. But I think yeah. that, what, you know, what was interesting about your work was, one, it was very realistic and it was very much, even though we were projecting and I mean, we were thinking about, okay, at that time we were starting to think about, you know, what would Lagos look like in a hundred years mm -hmm. time? This was a future that I could see happening tomorrow. This was a future that I could see, you know, mm -hmm. that was very much organic. Whereas, you know, what, what we had been fed as potential futures was something that, you know, would come out of California or America or, yeah. or you know, these really clean futures. And, I, and that for me was like the interesting part. And I think it then just makes you, you know, it, just, it then just makes you wonder, like, as I think about Mad Hall City and as I think of, you know, what we were able to do there, it was a kind of, you know, you had this way, especially in, you know, in, in visualizing this world of blending, you know, natural elements with, you know, your own, you know, you're, you're then, you know, mixing that with you know, metal, steel, a lot of like, mm -hmm. you know, processed mm -hmm. materials. And I was wondering, you know, you know, what drives that? You know, what drives this kind of imaginary where you're kind of thinking you don't want clean lines? You don't, you know, you know where does that mm -hmm. come from? Like, what, like, how did you, how did you think that, you know, to imagine the future, I don't want to use something that would be like an American sci-fi thing. I wanted to do something that's more, you know, mm -hmm. rooted in this place. Like, how did that, how did that decision come about? Yeah, I was, you know, I've, I've, I've always been attracted to um, ruin and decay in a sense, yeah. particularly decay when ruin returns to its sort of natural state, right? Or, yeah. or, or when ruins then combine with vegetation that overgrows and kind of, you know what I mean? And sort of like yeah. so that blend of, of, you know, a once permanent standing building. Um, yeah. now sort of returns to nature and nature has overtaken it, right? Um, on one hand, right, you know, this kind of ultra permanence is a very Western concept, right? Yeah. And it's, it, and it's, and it's rooted in kind of an imperialism, you know what I mean? Yeah. A 
kind of classical architecture, the monument that will last forever, you know, that will be a testament mm -hmm. to um, this civilization that we have built, you know, the kind of complete hubris of that imperial <laughs> colonial mindset to, you know, which now we see during the pandemic and the sort of uh, reckoning of racial inequality, particularly in America, when we're tearing down Confederate monuments is why, why do you want to create this, you know, why do you want to create this thing of, of grand permanence? That's a testament to your, you know, um, as opposed to a kind of architecture that evolves, mm -hmm. um, that is not necessarily temporary, but that kind of works with the cycles of nature itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, and has a permanence in that regard, right? The fact that it's able to grow and transform organically, you know, whether it's responding to environmental changes, whether it's responding to seasonal changes, you know, whether it's responding to population changes, it has that kind of symbiotic relationship with the environment and with nature. That's in the back of my mind. Still to come, Lake and Wale talk about the significance of reimagining the future from the perspective of ordinary people. Going back to uh, Mad Horse City, and I think what makes it very interesting is that, uh, you know, com you know, compared to other, you know, other. I guess projects or other other ways of imagining the future. This is, you know, a future of very regular people. I mean, we start mm -hmm. with dreamscapes, which is, you know, you have Shikoni and he's kind of a regular yeah. guy. He's yeah. like, you know, mm -hmm. he's like a laborer in this, you know, in this in this self-contained, um, mm -hmm. you know, in this self-contained space. And what is interesting about that, and I thought that, you know, one thing that I, I enjoy playing around with was thinking about an, you know, an AI or artificial intelligence you know, um, mm -hmm. application mm -hmm. or tool that was, you know, speaking in pidgin that, you know, that could, that could speak yeah. his own language. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think it also, it also speaks to some kind of, you know, it's kind of like animist in some sense. It's like, you know, you have mm -hmm. this technology that kind of takes on, mm -hmm. you know, a, okay. a, a personality of its own. And I thought that that was interesting. And I, and, and we also kind of see, you know, and animism isn't something that's like, you know, that, that's, that's strange here, but it was very good. I mean, or, or a very good way of, of just bringing in some sort of like cosmological experimentation here. And you brought that very strongly in, um, in Omenira where, you know, you have, you know, you have that, you have the canoe and you have those worshipers and it goes into yeah. that song. So do you want to talk more about that? Like why, you know, why, how did you, how did you think about that? Um, especially that moment in, in Omenira where you have th that, you know, that song and it really just captures you know, such, I guess it's such a, I, I don't know, it's such a strong feeling. And I know that whenever we, whenever we've shown yeah. it to people, they get like a strong feeling where you have the Bible verse in Yoruba in the first, you know, in, in yeah, Dreamscape. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and it's back to like, you know, and it, and it also has yeah, yeah. Yoruba tradition going on there. Like what, what you know, what, how, like how did that thinking come about for, for Omanira? Well, that was you, you wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I didn't like, you know, I, I mean, and I think that's the thing I enjoyed about about working with you on this, because I put it down. I was like, you know, they're worshipping, you know, people or they're, or they're worshipping um, Uluweri and all of that's going on. But I didn't expect, 
you know, I did when I when I heard it, I was like, oh my god, like yeah, this is yeah, yeah, yeah. incredible. Exactly. But that's the great part about the collaboration, and and like I think why it worked so well is that yeah. it was just like a series of like you know, like it was a relay, right? You know, yeah. Um, in a relay, you understand the purpose, right? You know, like the objective, you know, to to like win this race. But when you are running, you are just running yourself, right? And I think that's the way our collaboration. I think that's why our collaboration worked very well is that yeah. I just said, this is Shanty Mega Structures, this is the world. And then I just gave you three overviews, you know, one set in uh, SRO, single room occupancy yeah. space, whatever you want to do, one set on the canal, right? Or uh, like on yeah. the water. What you brought to Mad Horse City was creating what, you know, so I started with the architectural overview and then you, you know, you expanded into the interiority of, of, of this yeah. architectural space and what it looked like. And so, and then in keeping with the, the fact that the architecture is referencing, you know, these sort of informal settlements and local material and, formal, you know, that sort of market culture, you know, you brought in both the religion and, and you know, uh, your cosmology and the importance yeah, exactly. of it, right? Um, because... I don't believe it's seen as much, but we know that whether you are Christian or Muslim, that the right that the traditional beliefs still hold an enormous yeah. amount of power. Right? I think like, I can't remember who was telling me it was my father or someone saying, you know, people will lie on the Bible all day. They'll say, you know, that, <laughs> you know but if you cross a line in the sand and if you say this, you know, is is is, is part of this belief. They will not go against that traditional belief, whether they call themselves Christian or Muslim or or whatever. No, so you're absolutely right. And I think you know, there's even like you know, there's theories on this. It's you know, I mean, one of one of them is you know, this it's Peter Ake's uh, two publics, the two publics in Africa. Mm. So what he's mm. what he's what he's basically talking about was this idea that you know, like what colonization did was, and I, I like this argument a lot and a lot of people like you know Kwame Anthony uh, Anthony Appiah has have also you know yeah, written yeah. based on this idea that you know colonization created this duality but first and foremost we shouldn't yeah. i mean colonization was it was a rupture it was a way of like rupturing lives right but at the yeah, same time yeah. it wasn't as you know especially in in places where Europeans didn't settle like Nigeria it wasn't as you know, we shouldn't overemphasize its its impacts because these people still kept their practices. They did the best that they yeah. could to keep their yeah. practices. And one of the, you know, one of the consequences of that was this creation of, you know, two publics where you had a very urban, Western, okay, we need to be Western educated, we need to be Christians or Muslims, or we need to have like some sort of like formal, in quotes, um, religion. But you also had a kind of more moral, <laughs> yeah, more like, exactly, you know, yeah. traditional um, <laughs> public, which was, you know, where things really happened. And the way that yeah, it's kind of constructed yeah. is that, you know, in the first formal public, which is, and now it's become, you know, people have different ways of, of splitting, of having, splitting that duality. You either have it as urban, rural, modern, traditional, or yeah, even yeah. formal, informal these days. But the yeah. idea is that, you know, the other one, so the informal one, the traditional one, the rural one is where the real Africa happens. And like where yeah, a lot of people yeah. kind of are more feel like they're more accountable. So in the, you know, in, in the Western side, on the Western side of things, people are kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go into government, but I'm going to steal. 
but you never hear of people in traditional positions stealing because there's kind of like a belief that, look, if I steal something, there's kind of maybe there's an ancestral curse in there or something. So you're absolutely right in this idea that, look, there's this plurality that goes on with people who live um, in Nigeria. And Yoruba people specifically have, you know, are known for having that plurality where you have, I mean, for example, if I look into my own family, we have family members who practice traditional religions openly mm-hmm. and they're very much, but we're all within the same family, right? So, yeah, and there's yeah. no kind of, there's no, oh, you know, don't talk to that person. No, it's kind of just like, I, I think it's, there's this kind of Yoruba superstructure and then everyone just kind of finds their own way yes, of, yes, of yes. to that. And I think that that yeah. came out as well in, you know, in, in, in Madhor City. But the thing that also struck me about Madhor City was just how, at least from the ways that, you know, from, from when we got people to interact with it, how political people, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, like how how the politics of it resonated with people. So for me, it was kind of like, I, I loved Madhu City because, you know, just looking at the aesthetic and just, it just causes this shift of thinking, oh wow, so mm-hmm. the future, you know, could actually look like this and it's real. And mm-hmm. I remember when we showed it in, in Ikoyi under the bridge, I was yeah, like, yeah, this yeah, yeah, yeah. actually blends in like this, you know, exactly. I was like, this is full circle, it makes a lot of sense. But something yeah. that was very interesting to me was that a lot of people in the audience would look would often look past that and start to think more about what it meant politically. Like what does it mean for someone like you know Shekoni to have access to the dreams of people who live, you know, in other worlds, even though he's not able to travel. And I think for me in the pandemic, that is actually the life I'm living right now. So I mean I know someone, I have a friend, um, a colleague at work who you know, who who spends a lot of time um, with her family now just on YouTube going through different tourist destinations. And I was like, oh, isn't wow. this, you know, isn't this, isn't this dreamscapes? Like, isn't that, you know, isn't that exactly the practice of, you know, of, of what we were doing? You know, you then have offline where everyone is trying to get offline. And that, honestly, right now is me because we're constantly, we're constantly, plugged, we're constantly plugged in. And then you also have, you know, you then also have Omanira where the politics is very much, you know, to the at the fore. And, you know, that also extends to Akurakuda. And these people yeah. who just can't move around. They're so bordered, you know, even locally. And I mean one of the one of the one of the first like policy responses to the pandemic was we were going to, you know, border even states. So you couldn't yeah. travel. You know, from you know from one state to the other then you also had lockdowns you also had yeah, um yeah, yeah. and then all of that just starts to be like wow okay we had imagined <laughs> this kind of you know <laughs> we kind of imagined um you know we'd imagined this future already and for me that was you know that was something mind-blowing and i also saw that whenever mm. we showed it to to the audience that was something that resonated with them a lot because they were like look i didn't realize just how much of you know how much of a political thing um, just the virtual world or just even um, movement um, can be. And yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know if you got the same vibe as well. No, I got that vibe. Um, and I think we kind of hit it on the head. You really hit it on the head, right? Um, and I think that's because, you know, you're from Lagos, you live there, and, and, and so you're very familiar, you know. So even, you know, my naming of the thing, calling it chat SMS, was a nod to how outside of, you know, the West, the mobile phone is is yeah. that gateway. It's that yeah. gateway in the Middle East. It's that gateway in, you know, the, the Far East, that gateway on the African continent. That is the access, that mobile, you know, um, 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 kind of interface, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and just in one sense, you know, being sort of limited in, in, in kind of physical movement, right? 
but but then having that mobile access movement right and being so familiar with that and 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 kind of how that has then come to play out um in the pandemic when folks who have more physical movement access you yeah. know um even when we look at the nigerian passport versus now the u.s passport <laughs> you know, seeing, seeing the response like, on the US passport can't go anywhere in the world. Yeah. I'm kind of like, yeah, you're welcome. Welcome to this side. <laughs> exactly. And that response, um, um, but but what I like with you know about what you were saying when you were discussing um, you know, kind of how Yoruba culture plays out in this and 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 the idea of plurality and then the superstructure. And so I like those terms because I'm trying to like not use informal as much, right? Because informal is again that uh, a kind of phrase that you know that yeah. says you know that, that that suggests lesser. You know what I mean? And yes, formal exactly. is Western. So I'm trying to. But when you said pluralities and when you said a superstructure, and then you just fit into that superstructure where you fit in, and you have these kind of multimodal kind of ways of navigating um you know sort of everyday life and culture um i think that speaks much more to 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 what we were really looking at with mad horse city uh you know the sort of interiority and with the architecture we're looking at, at how you know and then back to my original statement about why i like this sort of architecture this kind of future is that this permanence is inflexible, right? Um, whether it's even the sort of political premise, this particular infrastructure that, again, through the pandemic we're seeing has has been completely uh, exposed for the kind of both fraud that it is <laughs> and the inability <laughs> to adapt to circumstances, right? And I think that that's what also makes this idea of, of ruptures, you know, a very, very prominent theme in the work because in every you know in, in each moment or, or in each um, narrative mm -hmm. including akurakuda there's there's some sense of a rupture there's some sense of a rupture yeah, like yeah. rupture as something that and when people think about rupture and i think that that's that thing that that or that's something i found interesting in thinking about this project is that when a lot a lot of the times when people think about rupture they think about it as something that is that has negative connotations and i and we we definitely have on this side of of the world have had very negative ruptures. We've, I mean, colonization yeah, yeah. being, you know, yeah. one of one of the major ones. But also, you find that especially nowadays, rupture creates opportunities for people to, you know, for people to just like reshape and I guess take life into their Absolutely. own into their own hands yeah. in, in different ways. And so, for me, something that that really struck me was when you look through the narratives, you see that there's some sort of rupture in each, you know, in each future. But people mm -hmm. are taking those ruptures and trying to do something with it. So, for example, yeah. you have, you know, that moment in Dreamscapes when uh, Shekani is trying to access, you know, the server and he has to use a VPN or he has to use his proxy <laughs> bypass uh, exactly. server, which is something that I mean, everyone, I mean, if you, you know, you, you're, you're living in like VPN world because there's nothing, yeah, you're yeah. on YouTube and <laughs> they're telling you, you, know, you can't <laughs> access this or you're trying to access exactly. that. And it's kind of just yeah, like, yeah. look, you live in this global world where everyone else gets access to your stuff, but you can't get access to theirs. And it doesn't, you know, it yeah, doesn't make sense. Yeah. In offline, just even the practice of going offline is some sort of, you know, is some rupture. And why mm -hmm. offline really, you know, really strikes me. And also, and, and I think it's, it's, this also applies to Omanira as well, 
is that an is that when you look at the work of someone like James C. Scott, who writes about like seeing like a state and how, mm. you know, a lot of the times when you look at like Western scientific practice and how Western scientific practice has been used to order the world, to create like this world in which things are organized, um, mm -hmm. that organization just lends to control and just lends to surveillance. Yeah. So you think yeah. about, you know, postcodes in Nigeria, mm -hmm. we don't have, we don't have, you know, I mean, if I, <laughs> we don't have postcodes. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, I think we do have postcodes, but I just don't know. I mean, I don't think, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend, um, I wouldn't recommend, you know, I just wouldn't recommend paying attention to those. But, <laughs> but the, you know, but the, but the, but the truth is that ways of ordering the world have always been ways of controlling the world and ways of controlling people. And Absolutely. something that also struck me about, about Madhouse City is that these are narratives about people who are in some way using architecture to, mm -hmm. I guess, fight against that. And mm -hmm. so on the one mm -hmm. hand, you have the fact that architecture can be used to order the world. But on the other mm -hmm. hand, it's kind of also, you know, a way of, you know, Madhouse City is a way of kind of like resisting that narrative. Did you see that as yeah. well? I mean, yeah. like from your own, yeah. I mean, you're an architect, like you, you know, you, you are grounded in, in architectural practice. So I'm sure that mm -hmm. you can speak more to, you know, how architecture can be used to like, you know, contain order, but, you know, and then, and, but then do you then see Madhouse City as a way of kind of destabilizing that a bit or as a way of creating some sort of rupture around that kind of narrative or that kind of usage of architecture? Still to come, Lake and Wale talk about different themes they explored in Mad Horse City, including the notion of rupture and how architecture has been used to reorder the world. I like the immediacy of working in a digital space and doing a quick mock-up of something, right? And the fact that I can change it. The fact that Mad Horse, the fact that, you know, Shanty Mega Structures can continue to evolve very quickly because it exists in the kind of digital space. So I felt almost like it's, it's more of a collaboration between the architecture and the lived experience, right? Um, but then we see in, you know, Omira that like, that like, even though I've created this, you know, this 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 sort of superstructure of of this, you know, these these settlements, right? Kind of organic settlements. We went even further away, went even further, and created like the shipping containing world, right? So, so, so I think fundamentally, no matter how much I try to make architecture this mutable thing that can change and evolve, there's 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 there's, there's always going to be even further resistance to it. And that's what I liked about, you know, each narrative of the Mad Horse City. It was like, you know, that rupture in each instance is like a further hacking of whatever that system is, whether it's architecture or whether it's the political system or whether it's like an economic system, right? I believe in offline, the system is, is that you have to be online because it supports, yeah. you know, kind of economic growth and right. Yes, and so- exactly we're always going to hack, right? We're always going to find our way around that and like hack it even further, you know, so <laughs> off like this, right? So it doesn't matter how 
So it doesn't matter how freeing the kind of system is, right? There's, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be a kind of uh, sort of natural retaliation around it. It's some, like at some point and in some way. Um, and so, you know, and, and I think, but architecture will always be the most physical embodiment of as, you know, as, as an actual physical, you know, space, right? The way we think of our, the way we continue to think of architecture now. Um, of course, we can consider architecture of sound, you know what I mean? So there can be more ephemeral, less material ways we can consider architecture, sound, uh, light, you know, that's not physical, but, but for as long as we'll have a kind of physical architecture, there'll be a rebellion somehow against it or a transforming of it somehow. And I think, you know, and, and even with our collaboration, that's kind of what happened. You know, that's, you know, Mad Horse City is now completely transformed shanty megastructures as a world, right? Now that there's a lived human experience and a kind of interior culture that operates within it now. Coming up, Lake and Wale explore whether or not COVID-19 can change the way we relate to spaces. Do you think, so do you think the pandemic is, is going to change how we, you know, how we see the world? Like, for example, um, you know, the, the Indian, Indian writer, scholar um, Arundhati Roy writes that, you know, nothing could be worse than normality. You know, the pandemic is a portal and that we should think about this pandemic as kind of like a gateway into a new, you know, into a new world. Do you think like, do you think it's going to change like our, our, the way that we relate to spaces or even just the way that we relate to each other, the way that we conceptualize freedoms? Do you think it's going to change anything, anything at all? I think it absolutely should. But I know that the powers that be, you know what I mean? I, I, I know the, the, the system in place is going to fight tooth and nail <laughs> to, to maintain that system, or if they're not able to maintain that system, to, you know, uh, 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 gain control of as much a large a stake yeah. of whatever future we may create as possible, you know what I mean? To maintain its power into whatever this world evolves into, right? Um, So I know for the U.S., I mean, the U.S. is a very critical juncture right now, you know, in in terms of both the pandemic. You know, it's it's no coincidence that the pandemic and that the largest civil rights movement revolution in American history (laughs) occurred. Within a month of each other, (laughs) (laughs) because because particularly with black folks, the system was literally built to continue. You you know what I mean? The 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 capitalist system is is inextricable from from race and the pandemic. You know, for whatever the Blexit you know folks want to say about it, the, the pandemic showed exactly how the system relies on labor of, of black and brown folks and how, you know, that the entire kind of infrastructure operates through mm. the support of this labor, but that this labor is, 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 is indispensable, right? So, I mean, it, it absolutely should change. Um, we should do everything we can to usher yeah. it towards away from the normal, right? 
Um, because clearly, yeah, I mean, because, you know, this isn't just happenstance, you know, the pandemic is a, is a function of climate change. You know what I mean? Um, it's a function of deforestation, you know, you know, the, the narrative we always say when we have a particular virus like this is that, you know, some foreigner did some savage foreign thing, and that's how it happens. <laughs> and it's so racist in its conception of how this virus happens, right? Like, oh, some, you know, some guy from Wuhan ate a bat. You know, it's a very savage <laughs> image. And it's just like, right? it's like mythologizing of, you know, of, of, of the virus. Like, why, why do we need to? Exactly. You know, <laughs> and like, so that's the narrative around this. Oh. But any scientist and virologist will tell you that it's 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 this massive development. It's tearing down forests, Amazon, you know, mm-hmm. tearing down Amazon mm-hmm. forests. That the way viruses jump species is because the environment is massively disrupted. Is it? It isn't one person doing one little thing that gets a vi- viruses ex- ex- exist um, in abundance in a natural environment, right? But they're contained as part of like the environmental cycle, but, you know, rampant capitalism and industrialization without thinking of the particular consequences is what creates this. So it's not an accident. It's a function of everything that we've been, it's like, yeah, like it's a function of the system. I guess, where do you see the future of Matto City and all of this then? How do you know, how do you think Matto City will, you know, will contribute to, I guess, further conversations? I know that one of the ways that we've been thinking about it was through, you know, through the novella and I think, or through the graphic novella, which I think has been, you know, it's been a very good, I think it's been a very brilliant, like, accompaniment to to the project. And a lot of people have been able to kind of find you know, a new, a new way into it, mm-hmm. which, you know, the, I mean, Akurakura has its own narrative, its own world, which, you know, is a fascinating world, but just generally, like, how do you see, you know, how do you see, you know, this project, I guess, becoming, or at least taking advantage of this current rupture and, you know, <laughs> furthering those conversations? I feel like it's already sort of generative in terms of the conversation, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So, you know, in a way, it almost kind of precedes it, right? Because of because of so many things that Madhor City and then now Akurakura being a rupture, right? Uh, like the the you know the, the the scene where the young girl falls in you know falls under the water, and then you see this super yeah. underwater city, right? And then when that's completely you know what I mean? When 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 that's completely like you know like that moment of complete rupture there, and then a projection into the future where at this time, only you know where that's, yeah. <laughs> where that's going to go. We're already speaking to yeah. these interactions. Like you said, the pluralities, the, the cosmological beliefs, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? The relationship to nature, the cycles of ecology and, uh, you know, evolutions of various communities, you know what I mean? Like, put more of a kind of focus on that now, you know, put, put more of a focus on that, um, which, you know, which the sort of pandemic is doing now as well, you know? Um, so I think, I think because it kind of already preceded, preceded, you know, these, these conditions, which, you know, like some dreamscape, you know what I mean? Like yeah. literally there's almost a one-to-one relationship you know like like it's like a, like an allegory it's a one-to-one between what you know you crafted in Matt or city and what is happening now yeah. so i think at this point 
it's like the world is catching up with it. And so now <laughs> we're kind of so now we're kind of moving. Uh, so, so now it's gonna involve like evolve sort of in sync, you know. African Mobilities podcast series was made possible with the support of the Goethe Institute in partnership with the School of Architecture and Planning and the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research at the University of the Witwatersrand, as well as the Andrew Mellon Foundation.